And he said, a certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. And he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now, when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be in need. And he went and attached himself to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he was longing to fill his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving anything to him. But when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread? But I am dying here with hunger. I will get up and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. And he got up and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him, and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your slave. Your son, sorry. <laughs> but, but the father said to his slaves, quickly bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fattened calf, kill it, and let us eat and be merry. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found, and they began to be merry. Now his oldest son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. And he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things might be. And he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he became angry, and was not willing to go in, and his father came out and began entreating him. But he answered and said to his father, Look, for so many years I have been serving you, and I have never neglected a command of yours, and yet you have never given me a kid that I might be merry with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with harlots, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, my child, you have always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to be merry and rejoice, for this brother of yours was dead, and has begun to live, and was lost, and has been I wanted her to read that because I just wanted to see if she said cough. <laughs> and she did it so beautifully. I just, I just absolutely love it. Who hadn't heard that parable? Everybody's heard that parable. Yeah, I know, I know. I, this is what happens, especially if you've been following Jesus for a while. Chances are you've kind of worked your way, at least through the teachings of Jesus over the years. And it kind of becomes one of those things that you kind of take it in and say, okay, we, we talked about lost sheep, we talked about lost coins. 
And then we talked about the prodigal. We talked about that we were going to talk about the prodigal son, and it's another lost thing. Uh, I want to throw out something this morning. This parable is not primarily about the prodigal son. Kind of wild, isn't it? This is a trilogy of lost things. A trilogy of lost things. The third part in a little trilogy that Jesus tells, we took the last week to talk about lost sheep and lost coins. And I can tell you this, we're going to have a struggle this morning because this has been burning a hole in my soul, if you can use that metaphor, because that's what it feels like all week. I wake up in the middle of the night, I go write some things down. I took a bunch of notes and now it's just a bunch of mess. I don't know, I don't even know what I'm looking at here. It looks like hieroglyphics to me. Got things all over that. I had so much to say and so little time, and yet I'm going to ask. Uh, it's like Paul says in his second letter to the Corinthians as he's talking about their triumph in Christ and that they're now tasked with being a sweet aroma of the knowledge of him. And then he says, who is adequate for such things? In other words, who can take this message and really deliver it. And he's saying, I'm questioning my ability, and I absolutely am questioning my ability this morning, but I'm not questioning the ability of the Holy Spirit to use a yielded vessel. And so all I can say is that I'm yielded. That's going to be my prayer. Lord, I'm yielded this morning to, your, to the tone in which this is delivered. I'm yielded to the, the message that I think you were trying to give here, Jesus. It's a transformative message. It's life-giving, Lord, but we need your help. We trust that you're going to do an amazing thing this morning, in Jesus' name, amen, amen. You know, there's one huge difference between the first two lost things parable, the sheep and the coins, and this one. There was nobody seeking after the prodigal. No one was going, look, remember the shepherds out looking, the woman sweeping her dirty floors and looking for that last little semblance of her dowry, you know, one of the 10 coins that maybe hung around her neck. Uh, Someone was looking, and yet this takes a stark turn. This parable takes a stark turn. This, This younger brother just comes to his senses, comes to his senses. I want to go back and what was so beautifully read to you this morning and begin to unpack The message. And first, I want you to remember who is Jesus speaking this parable primarily to? Well, the kids sung about him this morning the Pharisees, the religious elite, those that were so concerned about the morality of the nation. And yet, Jesus was giving them a parable that was going to rock their world, the very way in which they viewed the world. There are two primary ways to view the world, and Jesus establishes both here. We might call one kind of a bohemian life, the self-actualization life, the self-fulfillment life, the deconstructionist life. We hear a lot about that today, and many in this room will be concerned about the deconstructions that's going on philosophically, politically, and otherwise. It's kind of a free-for-all lifestyle. It's a life that I want to lend as much and grab life for all it's worth and wring it out. That's what I want to do with this life, kind of a avant-garde. It's the difference between Portland and Oklahoma City. It's the difference between the art, kind of the artsy part of a big community, and then the, and the burbs where people are working 
middle to upper class jobs and trying to put their kids through private school. And it's the difference between MSNBC sometimes and Fox. It's the difference between all the tribalism that happens within the culture. It's such a, it's such a stark dichotomy, but it's two ways of viewing the world. The younger brother has a view, the elder brother has a view, and are you ready for this? Both brothers are lost. Both brothers are lost. And you say, what are you, how can you say that? I mean, uh, the more, we're the moral crowd. It's us against them. Or maybe you're here and you kind of have more of an arty, artsy kind of a background, kind of a, uh, a way of viewing the world. And, and you say, no, 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 no. We have the best path for the world. Listen to what Tim Keller says. Listen to what Tim Keller. Tim Keller, by the way, let me just say, uh, allow me to say, he, Tim Keller was for, is for me kind of the C.S. Lewis of our day. He really is. He's able to articulate in ways that are just so easily readable and yet so orthodox in terms of our faith. He really is good. And yet he credits much of his understanding from a Reverend Dr. Clowney who actually preached this message, and Tim Keller went on to say that this message changed. In fact, he felt, it wasn't, but he felt it was the secret to Christianity, and it was in this parable. That's how strong Tim Keller feels about this. And this is what he says about these two ways to find happiness. Jesus uses the younger and elder brothers to portray two basic ways people try to find happiness and fulfillment. Two ways. One is moral conformity. And the other way is self-discovery. Each acts as a lens coloring how you see all of life or as a paradigm shaping your understanding of everything. Each is a way of finding personal significance and worth of addressing the ills of the world, of addressing the ills of the world, and of determining right from wrong. The elder brother in the parable illustrates the way of moral conformity. I'm going to describe that for you in a minute. The Pharisees of Jesus' day believed that while they were a people chosen by God, they could only maintain their place in his blessing and receive final salvation through strict obedience to the Bible. And I'm like, well, I'm... when I read that parable, by the way, and I'm thinking the elder brother, I'm just thinking he is robbed. He is, that is so rude. And we're going to get into the details, and it's even going to be more offensive to you than you thought. It's going to cost him a lot. And he's been working the whole time, and this ne'er-thee-well brother of his comes, you know, gallivanting back in, and his father takes the best robe. What would have been the best robe? It would have been his robe. And puts a ring around his finger, symbolizing you're back in the family, and, and, and no repentance, no groveling, no remorse. No, uh, it, he just shows up, and his father just immediately... What an absurdity, and he's ticked off. And wouldn't you be? Think about it. Wouldn't you be? Or would you be? There are innumerable varieties of this paradigm, but now catch this. They all believe. This is the elder son's belief, and we're going we're gonna to have an elder brother spirit and a younger brother spirit that I want to emerge in our conversation this morning. They all believe in putting the will of God and the standards of the community ahead of individual fulfillment. Now, many of you can say, well, yeah, that's good. That's what we have to do. That's why our society's breaking down. In this view, we only attain happiness in a world made right by achieving moral rectitude. We may fall at times, of course, but then we will be judged by how abject and intense our regret is. In this view, even our failures 
Even in our failures, we must measure up. Now, there's the younger brother, too. Uh, And we can see this way of self-discovery. In this view, the world would be a far better place if tradition and prejudice and hierarchical forms of authority and other barriers to personal freedom were weakened or removed. These are two ways of thinking about the world, two primary views, worldviews, and we don't even realize. They're archetypes for all of time, and Jesus is doing something really dramatic. He's saying neither one will work. I'm going to give you a new way. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, again, I'm asking you, again, for the second time, Lord, would you help us understand? This can be so easily miscommunicated. Our pastor's saying he doesn't care about morals. Our pastor's saying he doesn't care about... No, what is Jesus trying to communicate to us through this third parable? Lord, again, help us. So let's go back. Let's look at this parable. And I'm going to unpack it. But before I do, I just want to define prodigal for you. You know, the word prodigal is not even in the Bible. Did you realize that? It's something we... It's a... It's an adjective that we've used to know, and everybody knows it. I mean, you can be a secular person. You, you, you may even use the term prodigal son at some point. It's not an unusual term to know, even if you've never even opened a Bible. But what does prodigal mean? What does prodigal actually mean? Well, it means reckless extravagance is what it means. It means reckless extravagance. It means spend till you just don't have anything anymore. Some of the synonyms, exaggeration outrage, overindulgence, preposterous. It's just such lavish extravagance. Well, that's prodigality, and that's what the prodigal had invested. He had been extravagant to fulfill. He realized the only way I can be happy is to go out and find myself, to find fulfillment, and where did he end up? He ended up with the pigs. In Luke 15, chapter 1, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. Do you realize what that meant? Now, back then, they really only owned land. Primarily, their thing was land. So there was going to have to be a divestiture of this land or this loss and everything. And Now, remember, he was the younger brother, so the elder brother was always going to get double portions. So if it was broken out into three in terms of the estate planning, Two portions would go to the eldest brother and one portion to the younger brother. And by the way, when he's saying, give me my stuff, what is he saying? What is the younger brother saying? He says, I'd rather have your stuff than you. I care more about your stuff, father, than you. What an indignity, especially in such a patriarchal time. You can't imagine the feelings, I can't imagine the feelings of your father. It would be akin to one of your kids coming to you now or a grandson or something and I say, I know there's something in the future, dad, you built a big company and I, and I want it, I want it, would you give it to me now and then I'm out of here? How would you feel about that? Well, that's how, that's where we find it. And all it says is, so the father divided his wealth between them. That's all it says. Doesn't give any emotion to it. Jesus doesn't fill in the lines here, but you can fill in the lines. How devastated would the father have felt? Not many days later, the younger son gathered everybody together and went on a journey into a distant country, and there he squandered his estate with loose living. We can all read between the lines. 
Now then, when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be impoverished. Think of this spiritually. I'm going to do my own thing at some point. You know, one of the things I know is that when I see people going down the wrong path, at some point, I know what's going to happen. A famine, a spiritual famine will hit, and they will feel the poverty of their own spirit. I don't feel that I need to always trumpet morality. People find the end, and intuitively, people know anyway. People find their end. It always, always happens in someone's life. They will always find the end. So he went and, now catch this, so he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into the fields to feed the pigs. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods of the swine, but no one was giving him anything, and so when he came to his senses, maybe somebody here today will go, you know what, I'm coming to my senses, maybe even listening over through the television or on live stream, you know, something, I'm that younger brother. That's me. I've come to the end of myself. This is not working. My life is a catastrophe. My, the pain, this is the same thing we saw with the lost sheep and the lost coin. I mean, there's someone looking and, oh my gosh, I just, I feel like I'm coming to my senses. And he said, how many of my father's hired men would have had more bread, but I'm dying here of hunger. He thinks back about, many commentators think that there were servants that would have lived on the premise, and then there were hired people, uh, akin to someone who, maybe yard people, they don't actually live on your property. These would have been hired out, uh, people that worked for the father, and they didn't necessarily live on the state. He wasn't asking to even come on the state. He thought he had already violated every possible protocol, every communal thing. He would have been a complete an utter outcast, but impoverishment of spirit leads you to do some radical things. Maybe I'll go out and hang around my dad, and maybe, may, I know he won't bring me back onto the estate, but maybe he'll just hire me out as one of his subcontractors on his property. Maybe he'll do that. So you can imagine him formulating the speech. Now, this is a speech I'm going to give. All right, Dad, are you ready? I have a proposition for you. Are you ready for this? Dad, will you, will you consider? I mean, imagine what's going through his head. I'm dying here. I'm going to get up and go to my father, and I'm going to say, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Just make me one, like one of your hired men. So he got up. Well, you know the story. He came to his father, but while he was, this is an incredible scene. While he was a long way off. A couple of things about that particular society at that particular time, men... Older men, especially patriarchs of the family, they didn't run. Because to run, you'd have to kind of lift up your long robes and expose your knees. And it was just demeaning. It was a, it was a sign that it was just extravagant. It was outrageous. It was lavish. It was weird. Why would, why would he do this? While he was a long way off, his father saw him, felt compassion for him, and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. He couldn't even finish his speech. But the father interrupted. I'm adding that. Interrupted, said to his slaves, quickly, bring out the best robe. Put it on him. Put a ring on his hand. Sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf. Bring the fattened calf. I mean, these were, this was a kind of a once. This wouldn't, they didn't eat the fattened calf every day. This would have been once every 
uh, celebratory time, maybe a high holy day or something, something, but no, you just don't bring out the fattened calf. I mean, that's really extravagant. Kill it and let us eat and celebrate, for the son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found, and they began to celebrate. So if you will, that's kind of act one. We get the picture. Now, many of you know that, and you go, that's the story of the prodigal. I don't know what this last part's about, but that's the story of the prodigal. Is he just repeating himself with a slight derivation, adding, well, nobody was really looking for him. He came to his senses on his own. A lot of commentators struggle with this because it doesn't even sound like the Christian message. He didn't even repent. He didn't go through the cross. He didn't apply the blood. I mean, what's going on here? Just dad, just, un I mean, anybody in that society, the, the father would have indignity set back on the steps of his house and waited for his son to maybe come about 100 yards away and, had been, and then he would have started crawling and then he might have gotten down on his face and groveled and pleased and begged and cried and then maybe he would have allowed him to be in that state for a week or a month, some kind of restitution, some kind of repentance, some kind of something, but no, his dad just runs. That is bizarre to me. That is so strange. Why would God do that? What is Jesus trying to communicate? And to whom is he speaking? He is speaking to the Pharisees. So this is very similar with a slight derivation, but very similar to the first two. The joy over the one lost sheep and the one lost coin. Now for act two. Now his older son was in the field. This is the guy that does everything right. The guy that does everything right. I even forget what I picture. Okay, yeah, there he is. It says, and when he came and approached the house, he heard the music and he heard the dancing. And he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring, what in the world? Why didn't I, why didn't I get him an invitation to this? What's going on? I mean, this is, this is, this is going to be my estate. These are going to be my servants. This is going to be my, it's going to be my world. What is going on here? I feel not in control. And he, and he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. Wouldn't you become angry? I, mean, I want you to think about that. Try to put yourself in the position of the elder brother. You've been working and slaving for your dad this whole time and now this profligate Son of your father, as you'll see him call him. He doesn't even call him his own brother. He's already, he's already distanced himself. The son of yours is how he refers to his own brother. He's about to make a statement. In fact, just like the younger brother, the elder brother is just about to launch into disgracing his father, just like the younger brother. It's his turn to disgrace the father. He said, but he was angry and he was not willing to go in. Not coming in is a, a public vote of no confidence for his own father's decision. I'm not going into the party. Now, we would not now, we barely know our neighbors, but back then everyone would have seen the dynamics that were going on. Everyone would have known what the younger brother had done. Everyone could see. And so by him is now the soon-to-be heir to this estate, not coming in, it is making a huge statement. You do understand that, right? And his father be 
began to go out and plead with him. Now, this is just as extravagant. Let me tell you something. This is just as extravagant a reaction as it was for the younger brother. He could have easily written his elder son out, the elder brother, out of the will here. Why? Because he went out to him. By this public vote of no confidence, uh, this, was not, this was a revocable trust, if you will. <laughs> he could have written him right out of the will. I mean, in fact, in this, in this case, you have to understand that this was a huge humiliation to the father. And yet, what does the father do? The father goes out to him. These are the Pharisees, if you haven't started to pick up on this. These are the Pharisees, the religious leaders. But this is an archetype for all of those who feel that they want to pursue a moral course to God. And what happens? Well, these things happen, and it happens every single time. He felt he was owed. Father came out and began pleading with him, and he answered and said to his father, Look. Now, what does that mean? You parse that out. What he's really saying, look, man. Not esteemed father, I'm asking you, would you please, esteemed father? No, 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 no. Look, man, does he have a relationship with his father? I mean, is, is he in a place of great adoration of his father? Or is this a real chink in the armor in his own? So, as a, if you've ever played sports, golf, or whatever, tennis, whatever, you, you know that sports bring out, people say, you wanna know somebody's character, take him out on the golf course. The character comes out. When the heat goes up, you'll see. And unfortunately, I've discovered some of my character flaws on the golf course through the years. And I've also observed it in others. This was a character flaw that was beginning to emerge. The true state of the elder brother's soul is being unpacked here. Look, man, so many years I've been serving you, and I've never neglected a command of yours. And yet, you've never given me a goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, not my brother, when my brother, no, when this son of yours came who devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said, son, you've always been with me. All that is mine is yours. Story close. We don't know what the, we don't know what the next step was. Did the elder brother go, oh yeah, you're right. Does he fall in repentance? Does he... Does he stop? Does the father get upset? Does he write him out? We don't know. Story ends. Why is this such a profound parable? And why did Jesus speak this parable to the moral police of his day? Well, first of all, I want to talk a little bit about the characteristics of the older son. Overriding this elder son, overriding everything, was an entitlement, was a sense of was a sense of obligation as a father. I'm going to ask you, it, we're going to be looking at this this morning because what I want to, want to ask you is do you fall into the elder brother category or do you fall into the younger brother category? And then how do you do this? Is this somewhere in between this that we try to find this balance? Is that elder brother, younger brother kind of get into this moderation of the two and find this equal balance? Or do we just throw the whole paradigm out and have a brand new paradigm? That's what Jesus is saying. No, you throw it all out. This isn't a continuum on which you find somewhere in the middle. You throw it all out. And that is so radical. You cannot understand. This is so radical. But it's still radical today. Are you an elder brother? Do you have a critical spirit? 
When someone gets sick, do you feel that God owes you? Do you obey God to oblige him to serve your interests? Do you really want your father or do you want his stuff? What you have to realize, what's being compromised here is that when he brought the son back in, the already diminished estate is going to be diminished further. The younger son was trying to pay off his debt as a hired man. God's, the father says, no, you don't have to pay off your debt. The older son is trying to get the father to pay his debt to him because he's led a, a life of moral rectitude. There's a critical nature here. And by the way, it's not fun. They said it. The Sadducees, why? Because they're sad. You see, right? I mean, that's what Don and the kids were singing this morning. Pharisees the same way. Have you ever been in a church filled with elder brothers? Some of you have left the faith because you were in a church with elder brothers. Some of you ran from God for years because you were in a church of elder brothers. The way to God is through dedication to community, dedication to your moral fiber, dedication to this. But what you're really doing is you're choosing to obligate God to your life. You have no relationship with the Father or minimal relationship with the Father. Why do you think the Father hadn't? I used to think about this all the time. Why hadn't the Father thrown a party for his son? Because the squeaky wheel I kind of gets the oil. Is that what it is? Or maybe they just didn't have the kind of relationship that would have manifested in the Father wanting to throw a party for his son. You can see the spirit that's in the son. He would rather have his stuff than his father anyway. He's putting his father to open shame as he stays outside the party, outside the feast. He's forcing his father's hand, but we don't know the outcome. We're just left with that. By the way, elder brothers are fearful because how do you work through knowing? How do you, you're always trying to cling on to you. Whoever possibly can feel like they really live up to the moral police. You know what happens a lot. You see this all the time. You have elder brothers. I'm talking about in the church. I'm talking about in other religions. By the way, most every religion is pretty much filled with elder brothers. Come, these are the obligations you have. These are the tasks you have. And if you fulfill these, then God will be your father. And then they call it grace, but it's not really feeling like grace. It's not feeling like that kind of extravagant, lavish love that God poured out on that younger brother. In fact, who's the real prodigal in this story? Who's lavish and extravagant and everything else? It's God himself. It's the father who's really the prodigal. Spending everything and, I mean, who's really the prodigal here? Tim Keller wrote a book called The Prodigal God, and he was right. So let me ask you another question. Allow me to ask. We asked the two brothers why the li they lived the life they did. What would they say? Well, the younger brother just says, well, I just wanted to experience life. I wanted to do what I wanted to do. I mean, I wanted to just... I just was bored. I, I, I couldn't take it anymore. Maybe, maybe I didn't like living with my older brother and all his moralizing, and I couldn't stand the restraint, and I wanted to go out and find my own way. And what did he find? He found the pigs. Eventually, he, find, he found the pig. He found total spiritual impoverishment. 
loose living kills. Always has, always will. Saw this last week, some, I don't know, but a brother of some of these boy band things found him dead in a bathtub. He was huffing aerosol and taking this aerosol. Loose living eventually kills. Always has, always will. Is Jesus supporting loose living? No. Well, the elder brother, well, I was just doing what I was supposed to do. I was fulfilling my obligations to my community. I was fulfilling my obligations to God. I was fulfilling my obligations, my obligations to my father. I was fulfilling my obligations to the nation. And this is all I get? This is what I get? I'm incensed. I'm ripped off. No relationship with the father. Here's the problem. Neither one of these sons adored the father. Allow me to say that again. And that's your hint into the third way, if you will, that Jesus is describing. Neither one, and let me say this, allow me, please. Neither one understood the gospel. What does that mean? Neither one of them truly understood the gospel. If you go back into Matthew 13, in fact, this parable, sower went out to sow, you see it in Mark 4 as well. And they go out and it says, you know, the seed fell on the ground, it was too hard, and they didn't understand the gospel, so it never penetrated. And then it doesn't say anything about understanding, and then, but they received it with joy. Do you know people receive messages that I give for years, decades now? People receive a message and they go, oh, that was incredible, and it was joyful, and they leave, and then the... The persecutions and the worries of the world, the deceitfulness of riches and their rocky places and weeds spring up and everything else. And, but it never says in Matthew 13 that they understood it. The only t- place it says they understood it, they received the message, they understood it, was the good soil. And then it began to produce fruit. There are many believers all over the country that are elder brothers and they still don't understand this parable, which in my view is the gospel. You don't get to God through your moral rectitude, and you do not get to God through your loose living, your libertine spirit, your avant-garde lifestyle, your your lack of anything institution, anything, you, you know, everything has to stay arm's length. Both ways fail. Now, this is a strong statement, but Tim Keller quotes one of his his seminary professors, he said, the thing that was the greatest barrier for the Pharisees was not even their sin to get to Jesus. The, great, the greatest barrier for the Pharisees to get to Jesus was their damnable morality. Now, I know that's strong language, but is it not true? I saw this last week, and I see it all the time. I see great feats of morality and sacrifice. I saw Sean Penn over, I don't, I don't know, maybe he was doing it for something, but I really do believe that Sean is trying to, he's, he's in Haiti, and then he's over here, and he was with Zelensky the other day, and he goes all the way to Ukraine, and he's actually going to, I think he went into Kiev and all this, and you see some extraordinary morality pouring out of younger brothers, potentially, all over the world, or elder brothers, or what, morality is, There's not a religion that doesn't ascribe to morality. Morality. You don't think Islam has a pretty stark code of morality? Do you not know what's going on in Iran currently? Their code, their view, the woman, the the, the scarves, and I mean, now international strife emerging out of this 
Iranian thing that's going on, that's all around morality. You can question morality, you can talk about it. And again, is morality not a biblical ethos? Of course, but it's not the way to happiness. The way is through adoration. It's the same thing in any sport. So say they go to an NBA basketball player potentially, and they say, why do you play in the NBA? And there's two different individuals. One says, you know, you got to feed the family. You just have to feed the family. And the other one says, I just love to play. You, you, you can see both at practice. You can see both running their drills. You can see both. Do, where do you see joy? Where do you see contentment? Where do you see happiness? The one that loves the game. The one that adores the game. It's the same way. What Jesus is offering, the gospel is, I forgive you when you were already on the way. I knew you already made a change in your heart. I knew you were headed towards me, and I'm going to give you the best. I'm going to celebrate that one lost sheep, that stupid sheep that fell off the cliff, unlike those other stupid sheep. But that's the stupidest of the sheep. I went down, I bruised my knee, I cut myself up, and I, I picked that sheep up, right? I picked that sheep up. And I lifted him up and I brought him back at the expense, well, great personal expense and potentially even losing some of these other sheep. And I, now that's prodigality on God's behalf. And that's the message of the gospel. What does that make you do? Adore God? All right, I'll follow God. And then he's obligated. How do you know if you're an elder brother? How do you respond to tribulation? How do you respond to challenge? How do you respond when you look around the world and, and how, how, what's your view of how we get to happiness, how we get to glory, how we get to what makes life sing? If everyone, well, if all the other people, do you don't see that that leads to tribalism, classism, potential bigotry, and all those other kinds of things? But younger brothers, don't, don't relish in your libertine spirit because you're eating with the pigs. Neither one works. Here's the story. Both sons are lost. Here's the other part of the story. Jesus loves both of the sons. The father loves the sons. Everything born out of adoration for God and his lavish grace is true and undefiled. What is my task as a pastor here? Just to stand up for morality? You know, we tried that back in the you know, 80s. I think it was the 80s, the moral majority. I mean, the church is, goes through iteration after iteration after iteration. And it always fails. It always fails. Why? Because morals aren't important to God? Of course not. It just fails. My task here is to turn your eyes away from irreligion and religion. See, the religious are the elder brothers. The irreligious are the younger brothers. My task is to turn your eyes to adore your heavenly father, to adore Jesus, to look to him, to find the love of the game again, to practice not because you have to. He's not obligated to you. This is the way. This is the message of the parable. This is the message of the prodigal. This is God's heart. 
Who might be closer to seeing the light here? I'm telling you, it's the younger brothers. Listen to Matthew chapter 21, verse 31. Starting in 28, actually. What do you think? A man had two sons. Jesus talking about two sons again. And he came to the first and said, son, go to work today in the vineyard. And he answers, I'm not going to go. But afterwards, he regretted it and he went. And the man came to the second and said the same thing. And he answered, I I, I will do that. And yet he didn't go. Kind of like the younger brother, I'm not going to go. And then came back and did it. And the elder brother, I will, but stayed out in the field. Which of the two did the will of his father? And they said, the first. And Jesus said, truly I say to you that tax collectors, prostitutes, these are younger brothers, will get into the kingdom of God before you. John came to you in the way of righteousness and you didn't believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes did believe him. And you, seeing this, did not even feel remorse afterwards so as to believe in him. Now, I, I promise you that the elder brother in this case and this or the... Or the brother here, we, don't, we didn't say younger or elder, but those brothers st- still felt like they were right in the middle of God's will. We're standing for truth. We're standing for morality. We're standing, of course, and I'm going to get to that in a minute. Of course God cares because a lack of fidelity to God through right action and righteousness always leads to suffering for you and everybody you come in contact with. This is not a vindication of younger brother. It's a lot easier for a person living with the pigs to return to the father. It's much harder when somebody's been working in the house to realize that there is lost, and more strikingly so, but more subtly so, than their younger brother. Who could have imagined? So let's shift to the last verse here. Verse 32. His father simply says, we had to celebrate and rejoice for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and was lost and has been found. This is the third part of the trilogy, lost things found. And what did that do to the elder brother? We don't know. We can assume There's always hope for the elder brother, critical spirit, attitude, looking. I'll tell you right now, if if the church at the red door ever becomes an elder brother-driven church, leave, fire me, force me to resign. I'll resign if you can convince me that we're an elder brother church, then I will resign because I will keep It will keep people away. It'll keep younger brothers all over not coming here. They'll feel it when they come in. There's an atmosphere to the elder brother. There's an atmosphere to it. Younger brothers, why did the younger brother leave in the first place? Maybe it was because the spirit in the house. I don't know. The moral police were in the house. I don't want any part of that. I don't know. All that is reading between the lines, but I will tell you, please, Never allow our community become an elder brother church. It is not us versus them. It is all of humanity, and we are fighting battles against powers and principalities and spiritual forces in heavenly places. Some are lost, some are found. Those who are lost expect someone to come looking for you. That's why Church of the Red Door exists. You hear me say it all the time. We're a missional church. We're not just here to provide religious services for religious people, to 
gather around the flag and do all the different things and say, hey, this is just, aren't we great? And isn't everybody else nasty? There's no. If you ask me what I was and what I still am, I really, I was such a younger brother that I really don't have that in me, the elder brother. I can see though, had, there, had I been an elder brother and done all the right things all those years and always been the good son, I would, I don't know, it would be very difficult. I, I don't struggle with religiosity. I hope you don't feel that for me ever. I can be with somebody that's a million miles away and I can be with somebody who's been walking with Jesus forever and I, I don't feel that judgment. I'm not patting myself on the back because I lived with the pigs for so long. All I want to do is adore the Father. Do you realize what kind of sacrifice it was going to be on the elder brother's part? Do you realize that? What is that? We don't, we don't think. Okay, so he's going to take his third, and I'm going to be left. Okay, all right, that's fine. If he wants to get out of here, fine, no problem. It's going to hurt us. Our land's down. It's a community embarrassment, all these other kind of things. But he's going to come back, and you're going to give him part of the inheritance again, and that mine's going to shrink and shrink and shrink again. And I've been doing all the right... Wait a minute. Problem. The father's obliged to do this. This is how it works. Father's not obliged to do that for the elder brother. See, Jesus left his listeners with a gaping hole in the story. Did the elder brother repent or did he not? Were there going to be two homecomings or one homecoming? We know there's one. Was there a second? I have a sense that there wasn't. And this leaves us really something very profound. And I think this is the point of the entire parable. It leaves us a desire for a loving elder brother. Are you with me? Somewhere deep in our spirit, we want to know somebody's looking for us. Don't we? Who's the only elder brother that ever actually walked into this? Jesus, listen to Listen to what Romans 8, 28. Now, many of you have this memorized. Some of you have this as your life verse. You love it. You quote it all the time. Now think of it in a slightly different light to add something, another layer. Romans 8, 28 and 29. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. We want you to be like Jesus. How? So that he, Jesus, would be the firstborn, the elder son, among many brothers. Said he was the firstborn of creation, the firstborn among other brothers. See, Jesus is the new replacement elder brother. And he's not complaining that he's going to have to sacrifice everything. And he's not complaining about going to look. Why didn't the elder brother go look for his younger brother? Because he called him that son of yours. There's the, there's the telltale sign. He wasn't even his brother anymore. That son of yours has returned with all the prostitutes and all the loose living. Jesus is the elder brother. See, Jesus, but it's going to be pretty costly. Pretty costly. 
You know, it's not that elder brothers never look for younger brothers, but they do it for nefarious reasons, not out of compassion. Listen to what Jesus said to, in part of his woes to the religious leaders of his day, Matthew 23, 15. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte. Elder brothers can only recreate elder brothers. And when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Hard words. Elder brothers, oh, sometimes they'll go out and look. But all they're training them to do is be elder brothers, to be the moral police, threatening people to come back to a life of obligation. No free will offerings here, really. No adoration. Elder brothers don't adore their father. They want their stuff. The father should be obligated to me. I'm in control because of my moral life. As a result, judgmentalism, self-righteousness, lack of mercy, no beauty, no wonder, no joy, and are you ready? No fun. I want to have fun walking with Jesus, and I want to have fun walking with the people of God. Why? Because it tells me one day there's going to be a lavish, remember we talked about the last couple of weeks, Isaiah 25, there's going to be a lavish banquet, celebratory banquet, just like it was here. The younger brother's being invited into this banquet. I mean, it's celebration. It's a picture, a foretaste of heaven. It's a picture of heaven. I mean, why would we come here and have an atmosphere of always feeling beat up? My heaven, again, I have one task, and that task is to point you to Jesus so that you can worship and adore him. And out of that, will you become a moral, will you have a moral compass? Of course you will. If I'm playing a sport and I love the sport, nobody has to tell me to practice. Nobody has to tell me to shine my shoes before the big match. Nobody has, nobody's tell me any of that. I do it because I adore the process. Look, it's clear. Matthew chapter seven, Jesus said, and we're closing here, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, Matthew 7, 21, but he who does the will of my father will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? In your name, cast out demons. In your name, perform miracles. And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Why? You never adored me. You were after my stuff, my privileges, the kingdom privileges. You weren't after me. I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Elder brothers often break down, often break down, and then all of a sudden they find secret sin. Why do you, fi- why do you think you find people all over? Now, sometimes younger brothers return to younger brother stuff. That's been a picture of my life after coming to Jesus. It was not a linear. I would love to tell you, the day I gave my life to the Lord, all of a sudden my mind was clean, my actions were clean, I never angry again. Every, oh, it was just beautiful. I just whoosh, and I was like Jesus. I mean, it's been like this. And sometimes I've returned to young, I've returned to the pigsty a few times. Returned to the vomit, as was uh, an admonition in the New Testament. I've done that at various times. Elder brothers are always prone to return to elder brother habits because it's so entrenched. But wait, what about? Adoring Jesus is knowing Jesus. Let me say that again. Everything born out of adoration is pure. Everything. You cannot worship and adore Jesus. I asked Laura this week, as she's with the kids this morning, so I, I'm just kind of running through this and trying to verbalize it a little bit. And she asked 
probably one of the most profound questions. I'm going to give you an opportunity to do it here in a minute, just through practice. But she said, well, okay, what do you do to adore Jesus? What does that look like? Look, one of the things I love about Church of the Red Door, we got Catholics in here, we got Presbyterians, Charismatics, crazy AGs, we got all kinds of, we got, we got all kinds of people, every background, we have Jewish people here very often, we have you know, Mormon folks, we have all kinds of people coming in, and, and I have one task, one task is to point you to a deeper understanding of the gospel. To understand the gospel is to understand adoration. To understand the gospel is to know that there's nothing you bring to the party. It's Jesus, it's through faith and by faith alone. Now, does that mean it allows you to go back to your pigsty? Why? Why would you do that? It's Romans 6, verse 1 and 2. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace might increase? Shall we continue living in the pigs? Because the Father gave us a great reception and rings and robes and parties and everything when we sinned. Isn't that fantastic? Should we just keep on sinning? Because it seemed to elicit in the Father this prodigality of ridiculous grace. Shall we keep doing that? And Paul says, may it never be. Of course not. How should we who died to sin still live in it? Our lives were on fire, you younger brother people. Our lives were on fire. It was melting. It was eroding. Why would we want to return to the fire? Why would we want to do that? It's absurd. But he loves me in spite of it. He chose me before the foundations of the world to be conformed to his image. He works slowly with me. People get saved, they go to seminary, they do all the right things. They go, just this moral, and all of a sudden you read about them in some sting operation or something, and they're just, how did that, what, how, what happened? It's no fun, it's boring. Elder brothers are boring, and they will look for an outlet, and they'll have to hide it. It happens all the time. And they can find themselves in the pigsty. So in closing, how do, how do you fall? You, you more elder brother? Where are you, what, are your, what are your tendencies? Are you condescending? Do you look down on other people? Are you tribal? Is it us versus them? Is it, do, you, do you hate MAGA people? Do you hate Nancy Pelosi? Were you happy when her husband was, you know? I mean, honestly, I'm, I'm, I'm not, this is seriously not a joke. I'm asking... You, sometimes I have to govern my own emotions by how I'm responding to the suffering of somebody in the other tribe. Got to take back America. Got to take, you know. I, I'm not criticizing the fact. I'm not against the fact that we are in dire straits because we've got a lot of younger brother activity. Younger brother activity is much more prevalent today than elder brother activity, by the way. Much more prevalent. We're in a place of younger brother, give me mine, I am gone, I am going to experience it the way I want to experience it. And I promise you, there is coming an end to that, famine and spiritual impoverishment. And then where are they going to go? Are we going to be the elder brother, sitting there waiting for them to grovel, and maybe hiring them back as a servant? Are we going to be Jesus, the firstborn among many brothers, out scouring the bushes.
I'll say this last thing quickly. Job, remember the story of Job? Have you ever read, read the counsel of Job's friends? He has four friends. Sometimes you read that counselor like, that's really good counsel. Why is God so upset with that counsel? They're lifting God up. They're talking about morality. They're talking about bad things happen to bad people. Good things happen to good people. I mean, this is, this is good stuff. I, I often, it's funny to me, I hear pastors, they'll quote out of Job, but they won't say that God called that, who's darkened this counsel? I mean, you know, because God shows up and he goes, I'm going to take these guys out because they're giving you terrible counsel. They're the moral police, and they're giving you that counsel. And what did God do to Job? He just said, okay, this is who I am. He focused Job. His friends, see, focused Job inwardly. What's wrong with me? What did I do? Da-da-da-da-da. And if it's all clean, then God's obligated to me. They were focusing Job inwardly. That was why it was dark counsel. God then said, hey, Job, let me tell you a little something, and allow me to tell you a little bit of this. And he begins to describe his attributes and what had happened is Job just began to repent. He just in sackcloth and ashes. I don't even know what a Job wasn't even at fault here. He was the good guy. He was the righteous guy. And God just says, look up here. Look outside yourself. And immediately Job's response is repentance. It's not free, cheap, grace. It's very costly. There's three parts. We're going to pray this together. We're going to pray the sinners. We're going to pray the, the Lord's Prayer together. Many of you know it. I didn't tell the guys. If you don't have, if you don't know it, then you, we can learn it. Our Father who art in heaven, that, that prayer. There's three parts of that. There's petition. There's confession. And then there's adoration. Most people are good at petition. I've been, you know, with links and all the groups we have around the country. I've sat in many various links groups. And usually it's all petitionary prayer. Bob's got a knee that's really hurting him. His wife, uh, Sue's going in for cancer treatments. It's all petitionary. And there's nothing wrong with petition. The Lord told us to do petitionary prayer. Sometimes it goes a little deeper, confession. Guys sometimes come together, women come together, and I say, guys, I'm really struggling with this. Can you pray with me? It's confession. It's like an open confession. That's beautiful. But where elder brothers really don't get it all is they don't get the adoration part. I just love the Father. And that's the end. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, right? But then you get to the end. Forgive us this day, our daily, give us our, da our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses. Lead us not into temptation. What? Adoration now. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory. It's, okay, in, inward, inward look. And then, okay, back to adoration. Worship, worship. Get down on your knees. Worship the king. So we're gonna pray this, but what I want you to do as you're praying it, is I, is I want you, and we're going to finish with a song called Homecoming, and then we're going to celebrate, because we got to see all those things out there. we got food for you and everything else. We've got wine and aged marrow. No, I'm saying aged wine and marrow. <laughs> but the, 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 for those of you, a, Isaiah 25, look here. Will there be two homecomings today? Some of you may be a younger brother. You out with a pig. Some of you say, you know what? I'm condescending. I feel tribal. I hate the other side. I hate, you know, I feel... I feel obligated, and I'm really ticked off because God's allowed this to happen to me, and how, he, how, did, how can he bring this in? I thought I was supposed to be a believer, and he allowed this to happen. I mean, we're obligating God. We're elder brothers. We don't care really about the lost. We don't care about the other side. We don't care about they're getting what they deserve. That's good. They're getting exactly what they deserve. If you got a little bit of elder brother in there, we're going to confess. But how do you do that? Don't just try not to. What I want you to do is turn from inward to upward. 
Now, here's what I want you to do. When this last song, we're going to pray the sinner's prayer, play the, not sinner's prayer, the Lord's prayer. We're going to pray the Lord's prayer. And then during the, and here's what I want you to envision. I want you to envision the cross, a windswept hill far, far away. And I don't want you to look at it from a distance. I want you to go to the base of the cross in your imagination. Do me a favor, just, just quickly. I'll cl- close your eyes for a second. Imagine kind of a cold afternoon. Uh, darkness came over. There was an eclipse, what the Bible tells us. It's getting really dark, pretty bleak. You hear moanings and sobbing and, and the pain and the, the brutality. You can look up and you don't even recognize Jesus anymore. Isaiah had said that he would be marred more than any man. It's not you looking at the cross as a, as a philosophical or religious activity. You're looking up and you're clinging to the old rugged cross. And you can hear. You can see. You can feel what it cost this firstborn among many brothers. You can see it. And you can, you can sense his blood, a couple drips, just a little drip, right into your hair. Just you. Just take that moment. What do you feel? You know, Jesus, I'm going to spend a lot of time serving you down here, so, you know, you're going to owe me a lot when this is over. Jesus, you know, you... You gave everything. You have anything left for me? I mean, what's going on here? No. When you put yourself in that place of adoration, and you can do that every time you worship, every song you sing, every prayer you pray, think of the foot of the cross, and you will begin to understand the gospel. And as you understand the gospel, you'll never never want to return to the pigsty. But you also won't become an elder brother. You'll be right where you should be, at the foot of the cross, willing to go wherever, whenever, never questioning the integrity of Jesus. You'll just follow him. You'll risk everything if you understand the gospel. So let's pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. And in doing so, I'll add this, and Jesus... We choose to worship you with not a sense of hostility or bigotry or prejudice or anything or tribalism. Lord, we choose to just look at you and then turn to all the other lost younger brothers and elder brothers with the same compassion you had 2,000 years ago. And then, boy, will that be a homecoming. Would you please play? Continue to be adoring as you as we sing this homecoming song.